RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all, ever. Okay, start the thing. And welcome to another episode of RNMD, a show about doctors and nurses working together in this mad world of medicine. I'm Abby, I'm your nurse host, and today Daniel couldn't join us. Daniel is working a million hours a week right now, and he's really in the trenches, and he has to focus on his job um, being a doctor and his patients. So we're going to give him a pass. Um, he cannot join us today, and but it, today we're very lucky that we do have a special guest, William Amarque. He is a pharmacist in South Florida, and I think as everyone is aware of right now, South Florida is being hit particularly particularly hard with COVID. Um, and so we had just a really nice chat about Florida and their response to COVID and being in the pharmacy and what that looks like being a frontline worker um, and kind of what pharmacy is experiencing. Um, because I, I feel like sometimes there are certain jobs that get left out from the frontline worker um, talk. And I feel like pharmacy is one of them and they do such a great job and, um, I'm really proud of them. And, um, at least the pharmacists and, and all the pharmacy staff that I've worked with have been phenomenal. So I just felt like we really need to give them a shout out. Um, we also discuss more personal issues with William um, regarding um, sickle cell patients and the treatment and the racial bias that sickle cell patients experience. And um, this conversation was really informative and just William is such a lovely person to talk to. And um, I just, I wish him the best. And I hope everybody in Florida is doing okay. Reach out to us. If you're um, in one of these areas, Florida, Texas, Arizona, any of these um, areas that are getting hit hard, if you need anything, please reach out to us um, because we want to do whatever we can to support you guys. Uh, everyone really stepped up for us and um, we, we want to do the same. Okay, enough of my rambling. So let's go to the interview with William Mamarque, pharmacist from South Florida, frontline worker. Here we go. How's everything? How are you? Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good uh, with, you know, everything going on. I think uh, just trying to take it day by day. <laughs> oh, my God. You guys are going through it just like we did. Yeah. it's And where, what state are you in? You're... I, I'm in New York oh, City. Oh, you're in New York City. Okay. Oh, wow. So you were yeah. at the epicenter uh, a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we thought, oh, okay, if we go through this and we kind of squash it and then the rest of the country will be okay. And now it's just like, right. what did we do that for? <laughs> yeah. It's, I bet, I bet you guys are looking at us and like, oh man, 
it's it's great. I mean, I I feel bad for you guys. I feel really bad for you. I mean, we've been there. It's it's really hard. Yeah. I think you guys recorded like your you had zero deaths I think the other day from what I saw which was for the first time yeah yeah since uh March I think yeah. actually <laughs> that's awesome unbelievable yeah okay so um so let's get started so okay first of all uh, one thing about me I love to like do research so before uh, I I knew I was going to talk to you and Florida is like going crazy right now yeah. so I looked up a few things so like you mentioned New York City we just reported um the first day of non-covid deaths um since March and on the flip side now, the Florida Health Department reported 15,000 new COVID cases, um, the highest number in a single day in the U.S. since the pandemic began. Right. <laughs> yeah, those are those are some crazy numbers that uh, we're dealing with here. So <laughs> I remember I had that and I was like, wow. I mean, how are you doing? Are you OK? Yeah, I think. Um, I think for the most part, um, I'm doing good. Um, it's, uh, it's been pretty, uh, crazy this, this time because, you know, when, when this whole pandemic started, I think, you know, we were having some patients here and there and, um, you know, Florida wasn't really being talked about too much, but then, um, you know, now it's just everything on the news is about Florida, Florida, <laughs> Disney world and, and everything, yeah. everything in Florida. So. Um, I think now it's it's kind of getting a little bit more stressful because um, you know resources are are being strained and and you know our hospital is trying to figure out you know um, ways to um, you know really uh, you know combat this thing. So I think it, it it's getting a little more stressful, but um, I'm just trying to take it day by day, and that's that's all I can do. Um, so that that's but yeah, it, it is getting yeah stressful. Yeah, definitely. Are you, you're feeling that directly at your hospital, you're feeling the impact of the COVID cases? Yeah. At first, uh, we, we were having, um, you know, cases here and there, but um, the CEO of our hospital, he, he sends out emails um, and gives us, um, you know, debriefings about um, how we're doing. And, you know, it's, we're seeing, you know, high numbers of, of cases at our hospital. And, um, it's it's pretty it's very interesting because you know the the cases that we're seeing and and in our ER we're you know running out of um out of beds too. I think we we've already run out of beds, but um I think our hospital and some other hospitals are on bypass. So that means that, you know, we're not taking anyone in. Um I think they've stopped elective surgeries as well and they're taking, you know, only medical emergencies. So um, at one point we stopped and then, you know, things were getting a little bit better and then we opened it up again. But now with the whole surge, um, we've stopped, um, you know, elective surgeries again and only taking, you know, true medical emergencies. So it's been pretty interesting. Wow. Yeah. So if, if your hospital's bypassed, is there a place for patients to go? Yeah, we have other hospitals in, in our area that they can go to. But um, from what I'm hearing from the like um, other nurses and, and, and the physicians there is that, you know, a bunch of other hospitals are on bypass too. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not really sure right. what, what's happening. <laughs> so it's. What do they do? Right. Yeah. Exactly. So it's. Oh yeah. my gosh. That's crazy. Um, I mean, I know when it happened to us, I mean, frankly, 
I never, I never didn't believe in COVID. I never was like one of these people, but I remember thinking kind of along the lines of like, well, we deal with infection control every single day. And we have a lot of patients that have even tuberculosis or, you know, sometimes measles. I mean, things that are really contagious. Yeah. And so for me, I was concerned, especially when it hit Italy, I was very concerned, but I thought we can handle this. We've got it, you know, but the thing I quickly realized that I overlooked when it came here was these patients are ICU level patients, a lot of them. Yeah. And they just take a lot of space and a lot of equipment and a lot of medication and a lot of resources and they just drain, you know, everything that your hospital has. So it it just takes over the whole system very quickly. Right. When I, when I first heard about the pandemic, I wasn't, I wasn't really thinking about it. I was like, okay, that's, that's, that's fine. I heard about, about it in other countries and I'm like, okay, it's not going to really come here and affect us. But then you know, I'm hearing about these cases. I'm hearing about people coming back, you know, from from other countries coming back to the United States, and then, you know, cases popping up here. I was like, oh, maybe this is something we should, I should, you know, <laughs> start reading about. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Some of that now, I just in hindsight, I'm looking like we weren't nearly concerned enough. Right. I and mean, now I'm just like, oh my God, how crazy. Yeah. Well, okay. I just want to go over really quickly. So as of it, right today that we're recording is July 13th, we have 33 states are seeing an increased rate of new COVID cases versus last week. And obviously Florida, you know, we, we already went over the statistics and it's, it's really scary. Yeah. Um, you guys went into phase one, May 11th, yeah, and then phase two, June 5th, right. and you had about 1,300 cases at that time. And then about two weeks later, June 27th, you guys had like 9,500 cases. Yeah, it's, it's insane. I mean, the, when, I, when I first heard about the three-phase plan that the governor rolled out, I thought it was, you know, it, it was a pretty good plan. It was, you know, methodical. Um, but I think he went through them too fast because at one point I didn't even realize we were in phase two. I thought we were still in phase one. (laughs) We opened up way too fast. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, even, um, I went to, I went to Long Island, um, this weekend and they're in phase three, New York city is in phase two, but they're in phase three out there because they didn't get hit as hard. Um, and I went to go to dinner and I just assumed Everything's outside. If you make a reservation, it's outside. Uh, I went to this place and it, everyone's inside and no one was wearing a mask. And uh, I just sat there like I couldn't take my mask off. Yeah. I was like terrified. I was like, I have to leave this place. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just crazy that um, some of these places have just rolled it. I mean, Georgia is another example. They just right away they reopen. And I don't understand the push for that. Yeah. And and I think it. To be honest, I think it's political, like really trying to push, push uh, everything and, and get the economy back running. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I always think that, you know, in times like this, you know, our fight really should be a public health fight. It really shouldn't be a political fight. And as we're here, you know, masks are, are being politicized and, and all this stuff. It's like, you know, we have to come together as Americans and, and fight this yeah, I, I totally agree. It shouldn't be political at all. It should just be, we all live in a community right. and we should do our best to protect our community members. Right. And it's as simple as that to mm-hmm. me. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, as far as the economy goes now with some of these states that are going to have to roll back and go backwards, I mean, that's going to be worse, in my opinion, (laughs) for the economy. Exactly. And it's, you know, having to, uh, you know, a few states out there probably are going to have to shut down again. And how how is that going to be good for small businesses and and the economy when we could have just, you know, you know, um, done what we would have done in the beginning. And instead of dragging this out, now it's like, who knows when this is going to end? I mean, it's like, <laughs> oh my God. I mean, somebody made a comment to me the other day, like, what if we're doing this next year? Mm. What if we're here yeah. doing the same thing next year, which is possible like now? That, de- definitely <laughs> possible with the way things are going. I see this thing going into, into next year. It's like, yeah, well, so that's that's unfortunate. I mean, our hearts are with you. We think about you guys. I, I'm sorry you guys have to go through this. It's just awful. Um, I, I I worked in the ICU. Um, I'm an RN at a Manhattan ICU. Okay. And that's sort of my role with COVID. And I know um, pharmacy has been so much different. And that's why I wanted to talk to you because... I, I want to know what you guys are doing and how you're preparing and um, how you're keeping yourself safe and, um, you know, things like, I mean, you have staff that are going to the floors and delivering mm-hmm. medication. Right, and right. and what, is, what is that like for you guys? Yeah. So, you know, the whole issue of PPE, especially in the hospital, has been, been a very hot issue. And um, we have our techs. Um, especially with the proposed medications that are being used, like Actemra, um, Remdesivir. So um, we get those medications, and then we, um, we have to make them in our IV room. So um, usually our techs are the ones that uh, make them in the IV room, um, and then we have to deliver them to the, to the floor. So sometimes, um, a lot of the times our techs will deliver them. Um, sometimes I go deliver them if you know, there's no techs around. Um, at the moment, if they're, you know, busy doing other stuff, um, I, I go deliver them sometimes to the ICU nurses. And um, as far as PPEs, um, <laughs> we have a mask. <laughs> and uh, sometimes um, it, I know one of our pharmacists uh, had bought some face shields for the technicians, but it's like, why, why do we have to spend money to <laughs> buy our own PPEs, you know? Um, right. Yeah. But, but yeah, we have... Um, N95 mask as well, because we have um, a lot of um, technicians in our ERs as well, and they're um, doing what is called medication reconciliation. So we have like a team of people, um, of pharmacists and technicians in our ERs, and um, it's like COVID city right (laughs) in in the ER. So they have to wear their face shields and their masks, especially with the technicians if they're asking, if a patient comes into the ER and they have to do, you know, medication reconciliation. If that person is a COVID uh, patient, sometimes they have to use their telephone instead of actually going into the room. Or if they do, they have to wear their face shield and their N95 mask. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting times, especially in, in the pharmacy, because, you know, now we have to think about the PPEs. Now we have to think about, you know, the safety of our technicians and all that because they, you know, um, deliver the medications to the whole hospital. So those are a lot of things that we're, we're thinking about now um, during this pandemic. Definitely. Yeah. And um, I know because I'm in contact with a lot of RNs within New York City. I mean, I know of RNs who had um, people in their pharmacy in in Manhattan who passed away um, because of COVID because they were I mean, you guys go to every single floor or you're in contact with someone who does. And like you're saying, you're doing uh, a lot of patient interaction in the emergency room and 
Um, I mean, it's, it's really scary. Do you feel like when they're talking about frontline workers, do you feel like they're talking about you? Do you feel like that? Or do you feel left out? Um, being, being honest, I think I feel left out. Um, and I, and I think a lot of other pharmacists would, would feel the same way. I think that the perception of pharmacists really um, needs to change. Um, because whenever you think of pharmacists, you think of, you know, that guy behind the counter at CVS or Walgreens. Um, you know, I've had conversations with people that they, don't, they didn't even know that pharmacists work in the hospital, you know. So I think it's, it's a lot about perception. Um, a lot of people don't realize that pharmacists um, are at the bedside with the physician, with the nurse. You know, you have critical care pharmacists, you have emergency care pharmacists who are at the bedside um, dealing with uh, code situations, you know, for if a COVID patient, you know, goes, goes into a situation where, you know, as a code, you know, pharmacists are right there um, at the bedside. So I think that um, especially with the history of pharmacy, we've been trying to, you know, get the seat at the table with, with the rest of the healthcare team. And we've been trying to, you know, get provider status and, and things of that nature. So um, I do feel sometimes left out as far as when people are talking about frontline workers, you know, they talk about physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, um, but not so much pharmacy. But that, that's, the, you know, one of the reasons why I do my education and um, I do that because I want people to understand, you know, you know, pharmacists are a very um, vital part of the healthcare team. So um, that's one of the main reasons for my education that I do as well. Definitely. Yeah. And um, I mean, I just appreciate pharmacy so much, um, especially with COVID, because our treatment changes constantly. You know, the medications that we're using or trying um, changes constantly. And I'm 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 needing education. I call pharmacy. I'm like, you guys got to explain this to me. And like, what dose and what do I do? You know, and they're like, I got you. It's okay. Don't worry. Um, so, I mean, I, I really appreciate you guys and, um, I, I hope that that changes a little bit because you guys are a hundred percent on the front line and you deserve every bit as praise as everybody else. Cause you're going through it just as much as the rest of us. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. I saw you, you did, uh, IG live with, is it Dr. Williams? He also a pharmacist? Yes. Yes. So you guys were talking about, um, I mean, a lot of awesome topics you guys covered, um, health disparities, um, within our healthcare system. And one thing that really stuck out to me was your experience with sickle cell in particular. Um, and I mean, if you, if you feel comfortable sharing that, I, I guess I, the first thing I'll say is that, um, I worked in an outpatient clinic and we ran a sickle cell clinic. Oh, okay. And I I saw this problem up close. Mm -hmm. I mean, I saw providers who had biased and I saw patients that were inappropriately treated, inadequately treated. Right. Um, and so that it's like a topic that's kind of close to my heart. So I sort of wanted to get you know, you being a healthcare provider on top of your personal experience, I mean, I would just love to hear um, anything you have to say about that. Yeah. Um, sickle cell disease is very, um, a disease that's close to me because my brother um, has that disease. So, you know, growing up, watching him, you know, suffer with that disease and, you know, having to go to the hospital with our family and um, watching him, you know, in pain and in agony a lot of the times, you know, it was hard. Um, 
And I know it was definitely hard on my parents as well, seeing their their youngest, you know, go through that. And, um, you know, sickle cell disease is, is a very painful and agonizing disease. And, you know, it's, it's one of those type of diseases where, you know, you want to know that you are going to be taken care of when you go to the emergency room, when you go to the hospital, you know, it's something that you want, you want to, you know, know that your provider, you know, cares for you, you know, like he cares for his other patients and, and other disease states that he takes care of. So, you know, with my brother having seen things in the healthcare system, um, not only inpatient, but, you know, in the outpatient pharmacies as well, um, trying to, you know, get um, his pain meds and stuff like that. Um, you know, there will be times where, um, strictly speaking, you know, in the ER, in the hospital, you know, sometimes my dad um, or myself would have to advocate for him. And, you know, if he's not getting, you know, pain medicines adequately that he needs or things of that nature, we would have to sometimes advocate with the uh, physicians. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes the, the nursing too, I've had some interactions just at my job, just the, the stigma of, um, of uh, pain and, and having a chronic condition. Sometimes I would have to educate nurses that, you know, it's, it is okay for this person to be on this pain med because if they have a chronic condition and they have uh, a condition that's painful that they need to, you know, have taken care of. So I think with, with the topic of pain and it's just a lot of stigma. And on top of that, you know, the racial, you know, bias and the stereotypes on top of that, um, especially that sickle cell patients have to deal with in the ER, it's, it's really crazy. And, um, you know, I was reading some literature about, you know, just sickle cell and racial bias in general. And there's a lot of issues when talking about, um, you know, beliefs that, you know, providers may have about Black patients that, you know, they have less nerve endings or their skin is thicker, so they're not able to feel, um, they can tolerate more pain, basically. So um, there's just a lot of different factors um, when it comes to, you know, treatment of sickle cell patients. And I think that a lot of education needs to happen with on the provider side, because um, a, a lot of the times providers, they're not interacting with sickle cell patients, especially during residency. They may not be educated about it enough. So um, I think that all these things influence, you know, the um, the care that sickle cell patients get because sickle cell patients in America, majority is African-American. So um, if you go on any sickle cell forum, or, you know, if you go on any thread on Twitter, you'll see the, the main thing is that they don't feel like they're treated with dignity and respect, you know, when they go to the ER. So I think that's one of the biggest things um, I think that needs to change, especially with, with sickle cell disease and and treatment in the in the hospital. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I totally agree. Patients who attend sickle cell clinic, like the one that I worked at, um, they tend to live two decades longer than patients who don't. But the access to a sickle cell clinic for the right. average patient right. is just not there. Right. It, um, and, and a lot of that has to do with, like you're saying, racial bias. It has to do with lack of funding. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you look at something like cystic fibrosis, for example, and it's, it's eight times more funded than sickle cell. And, um, you know, it's a primarily white, you know, problem. So, it just begs the question, when when are we going to get over some of this? When are we going to start educating our providers? When are we going to start funding these problems? Um, and I think, you know, it's now or never. I mean, 2020 is kind of our our moment to say we're done with this and, and we want we want to make a change. Um, 
I mean, I know that, like you're saying, a lot of the doctors and the nurses don't have experience um, and aren't taught about sickle cell. And so they get a patient and they they have kind of no idea um, versus, you know, I've taken care of uh, cystic fibrosis and, and, and those are very sick patients as well. I wish there was an answer. There, the problem that I've seen is there's so much information. There's so much information. This is a problem. We've acknowledged that. And I don't see a lot of information on how to solve it. Yeah, it's you're definitely right. I mean, especially with the the ED situation. I mean, you have patients waiting in the ER for for a long for hours. And if you look at the sickle cell guidelines, it says that you need to administer um, analgesics within at least thirty minutes of triage. So you know you have um, sickle cell patients waiting in the ER for hours. Their you know, their triage level needs to be high because it, we're talking about life. Death. I mean, we're talking about you know, a lot of complications that can happen with, with untreated pain, especially when, when someone's having a sickle cell crisis. That's very, you know, it's in the name. It's a crisis. You know, it's like right. it's, it's an emergency. <laughs> it needs it needs to be treated. And I'm, I'm very encouraged by um, some doctors out there that I um, come in contact with and build a network with. Um, they're doing really good as far as changing perceptions in the ER and coming up with protocols to see patients, you know, sickle cell patients faster. and and making sure providers are aware of the guidelines and making sure they're aware that they need to, to treat single cell patients within a timely manner, you know, as, as the guidelines state. So um, I'm, I'm encouraged by, by people out there who are trying to do um, have action. But, you know, like you said, funding is, is a big issue with sickle cell. Um, it's, it's just, you know, the awareness of sickle cell needs, there needs to be more. And, um, you know, like you said, it, there just needs to be more education and, you know, 2020, I mean, everyone is, you know, in their house and just looking back at <laughs> everything that's happening. It's like, it's like everything's on a standstill. It's like, you know, ev- everyone ha- just has to see what's going on and we can use this time to come together and, 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 and really, you know, you know, make some changes. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point um, about uh, sickle cell patients in the emergency room, I mean, I saw there was a, a statistic from... Uh, Stat News, which is actually affiliated with like the Boston Globe, and they they were saying that uh, patients with sickle cell in sickle cell crisis wait sixty percent longer than patients with similar or less reported pain. Um, and really, at the end of the day, what can you say to that? What I mean, there's really nothing out. What is the reason for that? There's no other reason than the bias that surrounds it. So, um, I mean, I just hope that we can start to raise a little bit of awareness and, and get this, get this solved because, um, it's not fair to the patients. And, and like you said, it's a crisis. I mean, this is a life or death situation. Mm, Right. And, and that's why I'm, I'm really passionate as well about, you know, minority representation in healthcare, because, um, a lot of the, um, the biases and a lot of the things actually come from the providers themselves. And, and if, if it's coming from the provider, that means it's going to inhibit, you know, the treatment that someone gets, right? So that's why I'm a, I'm a, I'm a huge um, advocate for minority representation and in medicine in general, like pharmacy, you know, whatever you want to get into, um, you know, inspiring other minorities to to see that there are other career options out there, and there, there are other, you know, fulfilling career options to to help, you know, with these disparities as well. 
if if you have more people who are more representative of the right. Asian population that we're serving, I mean, it's it's going to be better for everyone. It's going to be a win. Like like you're saying, you you actually know someone, so you can actually look at this nurse and say, look, right. actually, sickle cell is very painful, and you know, um, but not everybody has you or has you know has a personal experience with it. So yeah, that that's the thing too. Is like a lot of sickle cell patients. Um, a lot of the times they don't have any advocates, you know, they don't have, maybe they don't have family members with them. You know, they have, they're, they're in the ER all alone and they don't know what to do. You know, a lot of people like my brother, they don't have me or my dad, like my dad's a pharmacist as well. So they, you know, a lot of times they don't have people who um, are with them in the ER that can help them. And it's really sad that, um, you know, that's the case a lot of the times, but you know, that that's why, you know, minority representation and, and all that stuff is really important, um, especially, you know, with this topic. Um, I mean, just on a side note, and you can share whatever you want to share or not share, or, you know, how do you feel in general about like this movement 2020? Like, are, are you are you hopeful or are you discouraged that it's taken so long? I mean, how do you feel? I always call myself like a, a short term pessimist, but a long term you know, optimist. <laughs> so the, the short term, you know, I. It's it's it looks bad right now, but um, I'm always a hopeful kind of person. You know, I'm I'm always looking to the future and and looking towards the long run to see um, change. And you know, obviously, change is not gonna you know come overnight. You know, um, obviously, um, me you know with my you know children, I want to pass things down to them, and and they can can run the torch as well. So it's like you know. I try to look, you know, in the long term of things and I try to, you know, do what I can now to see, you know, the type of change, you know, you know, in the long run and, you know, past, you know, activists and, you know, they, they saw the the long-term goal as well. So it's like, you know, a lot of the things that, a lot of the changes that we have now are because of what people did, you know, in the past. So, you know, I think um, I, I continue to stay hopeful in the long run. Things don't look good now, but you know, I, I just try to take it day by day. And um, I am encouraged that things will, you know, get better. Yeah, yeah. How, how do you um, just on like a, to go back to COVID for a second, how, how are the uh, people in your community? I mean, are they wearing masks? Are they what are they doing? And you have to wear a mask to get into a certain establishment. So the people in my community, yes, are wearing masks now. In, in South Florida area. Now, I'm not sure about, you know, the north or you know the other sides, but um, here where I am and 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 southern more southern areas, yes, we are wearing masks. So it's encouraging to see, you know, when I go out, my the, you know fellow people in my community wearing masks and and stuff like that. But there's there's still people who obviously are not going to take it seriously. I think it's <laughs> I think it's all a hoax. So it's uh, I think one of the biggest things I have like against the governor is just like I, I wish you would be more of a leader, like step up and say, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And I think, especially nationally, I think everything is just being left to the States or you have the mayors, you know, <laughs> beefing with the governors, like, oh, the governor, the mayor says, like, we should just have a unified, you know, leadership as far as COVID and, and what we're going to do. So I, I was actually talking to my dad and he brought up a good point. He was like, you know, if, if someone was going to attack America, the, the president wouldn't say, okay, Florida, you're off to defend for yourself or, you know, <laughs> Oregon, you're, you're no, he's, we're going to come together and we're going to fight this common enemy. So, you know, COVID is our common enemy. So we have to come together and fight it. 
Of course. Yeah. I mean, we, we had the same problem, though. I mean, New York City, de Blasio and Cuomo, they hate each other. And then Cuomo and Trump hate each other. And it, it, Trump was withholding ventilators from us or something. They were like having an argument. I'm like, oh, my God, get it together, you guys. Like, <laughs> it's crazy. It's, so, it's too political. It's like we should just forget about all that and just come together and, and beat this. It's like it's dragging for too long. We could have... <laughs> You know, yeah, we could have been done by now. Yeah. Yeah, it's so crazy. Yeah, I mean, the people in New York were very lucky. I mean, I guess because the people here saw it up close, they're really compliant with the mask. You really don't see too many people. I mean, once in a while, you know, people are outside. They're a little away from people. They've got it on their chin, like the chin strap or whatever. But I try to give people a pass as long as they're not inside. You know, they're not in a group or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, you look at some of these other places like 4th of July, I saw pictures, people are on boats and large groups and, um, oh my God, it makes me cringe. I deleted some people off of Instagram. I was like, I, if you're not social distancing, I can't see you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's crazy. I don't don't know if you've heard, I guess in, in some States people are having like COVID parties now to see who can, (laughs) who can get COVID. So it's like, they're so crazy. Yeah. it's absolutely yeah. nuts. And I mean, I saw one guy who he went to a party and there was a asymptomatic COVID person who was there and um, gave it to him. And he wrote like a whole Facebook post about how he shouldn't have been there and that he felt bad. Yeah. And I'm just like, people just think this is a joke until it's actually affecting their own family, you know, and that's the thing I don't get. like. Can't you see what's happening and, and, and apply it to your own life and say, oh, I can prevent this. I can prevent my family from getting sick. Exactly. It's like you would think people would have common sense to, to see that this is uh, a deadly virus. And, but the thing is, a lot of people are stuck on their political mindset. Like, oh, this is just a, a virus that the liberals want to attack on us. And it's like, it's, that is not like it's, it's a, I mean, it. They're banning, I, th- I think there's some countries are even banning Americans from coming. Yeah, I th- I think we're not allowed in Canada right now and Europe. Right, right. Yeah, so it's like they're looking at us as like, you know, what? <laughs> didn't you see what happened in, in Italy? And Yeah. Oh, my God. When, when I, um, I, I've been trying to learn Italian for like a few years and I just happened to be following this like Italian language Instagram account. And once in a while I would message the person who runs it. I didn't even know who ran it. I just would message them once in a while. And then they started posting their president talking about COVID. And that was before it hit New York. And I just messaged and said, that this is great because the president speaks very clearly. And so I was right, like, right. this is helpful for me to learn this language. Um, and the person messaged me back and said, oh, you're a nurse. My wife is a nurse in Italy and is currently going through like COVID pandemic. And he, right. he just said, brace yourself. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And I think about that message once in a while, like, oh, my God, this Italian guy was, like, telling yeah. me my future. Like, <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy, like, how other countries, they saw it. And it's just, like, I, I wish I would have paid attention more. Because when it first started, I was like, uh, whatever. <laughs> but, uh, 
but yeah, it's it's now we're seeing the all the effects of it here, especially in Florida, and it's like, and it's crazy. People are coming up with you know so many excuses. You know the conversations I have with people, it's like, you know, um, it's crazy. Like they're they're trying to come up with anything and everything to shift the discussion. It's like, you know, look at all these cases and hospitalizations. Oh, but the death rate is down. You know, I tell them, oh, I, people are dying at my hospital. Oh, it must be just older people. Like it's not younger people. It's like right. Right. So what do you do in that situation? Do you try to educate them or do you let it go? What do you do? So with with me, it's hard for me to let things go, especially on social media, because uh, <laughs> I have a lot of friends who, who post a lot of mis- misinformation. So it's hard for me not to comment. So a lot of the times I, I try to educate um I try to, you know, comment and, and really talk about why, you know, what the person just said is not true. Like, it's not just a disease of, of older pre-existing conditions. Like, I tell them stories of, you know, personal stories of people at my hospital. Like, we've had young people come in. We had, um, I think, a, a 38 or 39-year-old on go on ECMO. So yeah. it's like, it's, it's not just a disease of older pre-existing, you know, conditions. Anyone can really get it. Because with this virus... I mean, we're seeing people, we're seeing young people get it um, and get severe illness. And then we're seeing some old people not do too well. And then some older people may do well. Some younger people may not do well. So it's like, we don't know what is causing one person to go in such a, you know, critical illness versus someone else who may get mild symptoms or be asymptomatic. So it's like, you don't want to gamble because, you know, you don't know how you're going to react if you get it. So it's like, you have to take the problem. Exactly. I mean, we saw the same thing. I mean, New York City, we we felt like we just didn't know there was no rhyme or reason. There was nothing that was working. It seemed like some of the things that we were doing were the wrong things. And um, there was just no protocol for it. And like you're saying, it's so unpredictable. You can't say, oh, this person has this, therefore they're going to have a better outcome. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. This is a new virus and we don't understand it. I've heard of... uh, similar things of patients in their thirties being really getting really sick. I I've heard of other healthcare providers taking it home to their family and maybe they got sick, but their family passed away too. Yeah. It's crazy. It's so unpredictable. You know, I mean, I've, I've read stories of young people having to be on dialysis afterwards or anticoagulation afterwards, because a lot of people are not talking about the, the long-term effects as well. We're just talking about death and hospitalization, but you know, a lot of people who get out of the ICU, it's, it's a long road to recovery. You know, a lot of people lost a lot of weight, they're wasting, and and now they have to recover. And some of them may have to be on anticoagulation for a certain amount of time now because of all the clots that are forming in the body and stuff like that. So, you know, there's a, a lot of different factors to think about with COVID. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly like you're saying, um, they might survive, but they were maybe on a ventilator for two weeks and now they have a trach and a peg. I mean, it's just like a nightmare, basically. Um, yeah. I mean, it's very serious. I'm, I'm like you. I had to delete my Facebook because <laughs> I just couldn't anymore. I mean, I'm originally from Michigan and I mean, these people were debating about they were up in arms, angry because the public pool wasn't going to be open this summer. 
And I, I just couldn't anymore. I mean, I went, I went on my little nice, thoughtful nurse, you know, thing and just said like, Hey guys, I'm originally from this town. And like, just so you know, I'm working directly with COVID patients and this is really serious and it's just better that you stay home and like chill out for one year, you know? And I got like a hundred replies, like you're wrong and you're fear mongering and you're scared and you're, you know, a sheep and all of this stuff. And I was like, you know what? I'm just done with the negativity. I just deleted it. I couldn't even deal with it. Yeah. It's, it's sad. Like it's people, we, we can't just come together and use common sense. Like we have to, people are just seeing things through their political eyes. It's like, you can't, <laughs> you can't see anything any, any other way. It's like you're, you're held, held to your, you know, presuppositions about certain things. So it's like, I can tell you, you know, we're, this is a deadly virus. I can tell you, you know, personal stories about what I'm going through. And it's like, whatever. It, it doesn't matter because <laughs> they heard one uh, travel nurse who wants to sell a book right, say right. the opposite. So that's it. <laughs> exactly, you know? exactly. Instead of listening to the whole scientific community, you're going to listen to one fringe physician or, or a nurse or, you know. Oh my God. It's just crazy. Yeah. I mean, there was, I remember at the beginning, there was two doctors who they were working in a part of California that had like zero COVID cases at the time. And they were saying, Oh, COVID's fake, you know, and in New York city, we're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. I think that? I remember those two, uh, I think there were like two ER docs out in California. I I yeah. Yeah. Urgent care or something yeah, like urgent that. Care, yeah. I, I mean, I guess this is the question I've been sort of like, kind of grappling with because I mean, this, this isn't new, right? We have had this problem with misinformation and um, vaccines are a really good example. People anti-vax and all this stuff, right? I mean, to what degree do people have an opinion? And that's allowed and fair, obviously, because you have a right to your opinion. And then where's the line of where it's misinformation and now you're a public health danger? Right. I mean, that, that's something I struggle with, too, especially with what you brought up, the, the whole vaccine debate. It's like that, that's something I, I struggle with because it's like we, we have the right, we have our opinions and we have the right to say what we want to say. But then sometimes it gets, you know, to the point where the stuff you're saying really could be a danger to the public, you know, and especially with this whole hydroxychloroquine situation, um, you know, I don't know if you heard of the story. There was a story of the dad was a PA and the the um, the mother was a nurse, and um, the daughter, I think, beat cancer and had pre-existing conditions, but the daughter had ended up getting COVID from a, a church party they had went to. But they took it upon themselves to give, you know, they didn't specify what dose of hydroxychloroquine, but they gave some hydroxychloroquine. Um, her breathing was, was, you know, getting worse. So they put her on her grandfather's oxygen and they did not want to go to the hospital. Eventually they went to the hospital and she got intubated and she ended up dying. But it's like, there's just so much misinformation out there. And it gets to the point where it's like life and death. Like you're, what you're saying could kill someone, you know? So it's like, where, where do we draw the line? Like, I don't know. That, that's, that's, a, that's a hard question. Yeah, definitely. I think as um, healthcare providers going forward after the dust settles, we're, we're going to have to figure that out to some degree. Because, um, yeah, I mean, people have a right to, to their own opinion, but we've just gotten, especially, you know, again, I think it probably goes back to leadership where facts are just debatable. And um, it, 
if, if you want to tout, you know, whatever you want to tout in your own home, that's fine. But I mean, I had people on my Instagram page calling me crisis actor, calling me saying I was a liar, saying I was working for the government. And I mean, people taking time out of their day to like, come, so they really believe this is happening, you know? Right, right. That, that's one of the reasons why I think I'm a big advocate of healthcare professionals getting on social media and really combating misinformation. So you have people like Dr. Mike, you know, who has millions of followers and he's on, you know, Twitter and Instagram and, and, and YouTube and, and you have a whole bunch of other, you know, healthcare professionals, you know, actively engaging people on social media and combating misinformation. So I think that it's, um, I think healthcare professionals are really going to, um, in my opinion, need to use social media to their advantage. Like they're going to um, use that to help, you know, combat misinformation. I think that's one way that we can really, you know, help with in, in regards to this. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat today. And um, I know you're so busy and you're going through COVID pandemic and um, but your insight is really valuable. And that's why I wanted to um, to talk to you today. And also, um, just shout out to pharmacists in general. I mean, you guys are doing awesome. Everybody in pharmacy, like we love you guys and we appreciate you. And, um, I hope you feel the love when everybody talks about frontline workers and COVID workers. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I, I really appreciate you know, everything you're doing and, and the education that you're bringing as far as, you know, in the nursing side, because nur nurses are very important. A lot, a lot of the times they, they, you know, don't get the appreciation they deserve as well. So you guys are very, very important. And you guys help out pharmacy a lot too. So <laughs> we both help each other out. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Stay in touch. Okay. All right. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for listening. We really appreciate it. If you have any comments or topics you want to submit, please send it to us. We're rnmdpodcast at gmail.com. I think that's going to do it for us today. <laughs>